us remotely, and particularly if you're visiting Wallace through your uh, computer live stream, on behalf of our church family, though you can't see them, we're very encouraged and grateful that you've joined us today. Our scripture text is the end of 1 Peter chapter 1, spilling over into 1 Peter chapter 2. This is the epistle in the New Testament we've been working through this semester. Peter is one of the apostles that was very close to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. You may know Peter from his famous denial of Jesus on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Well, he was a deeply changed man by the power of God's Spirit, and by that same Spirit, he writes these words for us. 1 Peter 1, beginning at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter has created a very vivid scenario for you. He picks up his Bible and he says, come outside with me for a moment. And he says, look at the ground. You see the grass? It's green now, but you know with certainty by December, it's going to wither and fade. And he says, look at the flowers. Oh, they're pretty now. But you know with certainty by winter, they're going to wither and fade away. Why is that? Because the grass and the flowers come from, the word in verse 23, perishable seed. Anything born of a perishable seed will eventually die. And then Peter turns and he points at you. And he says, you too, like the grass and the flowers, will die. Why? Well, like the grass and the flowers, you were born of a perishable seed. Verse 24, all flesh, all of us in skin and bones, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. And then Peter points at the Bible, the Word of God. And he says, unlike the grass and the flowers and you, this won't fade or wither. Verse 24, the grass withers, 
the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Why? Well, it is, according to verse 23, imperishable. Like the God from which this word came, it is eternal, indestructible. It has life in and of itself. And there's good news if you're worrying about your flesh dying, and you should. The good news is if this word gets into you, you too will never perish. Verse 23, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Notice how Peter makes explicit what the word of the Lord he references in 23 is. He says in 25, this word is the good news that was preached to you. So if you have believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, you've trusted God's promise, free offer of salvation, that he will through Christ forgive you and will purify your soul of all sins by the precious blood of Christ through his cross. If you believe that, you will never perish. You can be sure God will look upon you and see, like the imperishable word of God, your soul now has been purified through Christ. It's imperishable. Peter may be recalling here the very words Jesus on the night he was betrayed spoke to him in John 15, 3, when he said, you already are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Now, it was a matter of time before they truly were cleansed through the cross of Jesus by his blood, but in God's economy, it's as good as done when Peter says it here. This is the love and the power of Jesus Christ. He alone by his cross can cleanse us once and for all and purify our souls. Now, is that the complete picture? No. Let's rewind. Peter, with Bible in hand, takes you outside. He points to the grass, perishable, check. The flowers, perishable, check. The word of God, imperishable, this is the gospel that was preached to you, the purifying blood of Jesus Christ, and your soul, having believed the gospel, now purified. What's the last element in the equation here? Others. Notice how Peter applies this impeccable airtight logic. Look at verse 22 again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, something terribly significant follows receiving a new purified heart by the work of Christ in the gospel. And that is the power of God's word to equip you to love others. It's verse 22. You purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Now he's talking about purification as an ongoing transformation of your heart, a growth in grace, what we call theologically 
sanctification, working with the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to rid your soul of the impurity of sin. This is not unlike the rest of the Bible. 1 John 3, 3, everyone who thus hopes in Christ purifies himself just as he is pure. James 4, verse 8, purify your hearts, you double-minded. So Peter is referring to an ongoing work where we are serious and intentional over those things, those sins that creep in and impurify us, as it were. And he's annexing that to sincere brotherly love. What's his point? The gospel changes forever both the way God relates to you, he now relates to you in love, lavishing his love upon you, seeing you as pure as his son. What a gift! What assurance, what comfort. And the gospel invariably changes the way you relate to others. How? That's the question I want to answer in the rest of the sermon. It's very simple, it's very clear. The contrast Peter draws in the way we relate to others as we are purifying our hearts in obedience to God's commands to holiness, having received this once and for all purified heart in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the difference is between insincere and sincere love. So let's look first, number two on the outline, at insincere relating. That, to me, is the most helpful word to put all over the junk that Peter lists in verse one of chapter two. He says, so put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. The verb here is critical, put away. Suppose you're out in the wilderness camping and a bee lands on you. You flick it off as quick as you can vehemently. That's the idea of this word, put away. You're sitting by the campfire and a, a big spark pops out from the coals and lands on you. You put it off as quickly as possible, fearful that those things would harm you. That's the same kind of intensity Peter is enjoining upon us with respect to malice doing harm to others, deceit, hiding the truth from others, hypocrisy, preaching one thing to others, practicing the opposite, envy, excessively obsessing over what they are or have over against what you have or are, and slander, disparaging, speaking ill about, or running down other people. So when I see a list of five words like this in the Bible, that prompts me to ask questions of the list. That's what I did. I've got four questions of these five words. Here's the first question. You look at these five words, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. What do they have in common? Well... Obviously, they tempt even people who love Jesus. Peter is writing to Christians, and he's telling them to put these things off because these vices still tempt even those of us who want to walk with Jesus. So you need to believe that the potential for every one of these, beloved, is in your heart, and just given enough fertilizer, enough water, enough sunshine may sprout into some of these awful things. James, the brother of Jesus, said, James 3.2, we all stumble in many ways. You're not above any of these. Neither am I. 
What do these things have in common? Well, they obviously pollute and break down relationships. It's very painful to be on the receiving end of any of these things. Nobody, you don't have to be a follower of Jesus to not want to be treated with malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, or slander. They do inflict harm on Jesus' little lambs while withholding the good that we owe each other. I think of Paul's admonition in Romans 15 too. Let us please his neighbor for his good, for his edification. None of these things bring good or edification to another person. And the last thing to observe that these things have in common is when these are being expressed, they are usually accompanied with volatile emotions and harsh words. When we feel this way internally, it almost always expresses itself out of our mouths. So I think of Proverbs 12:18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. When these capture your heart, you're going to be cutting and inflicting harm with people invariably with your words. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. Oh, to begin every day with the prayer, don't let my words bring anything to anyone else but the healing that you would use them for. So these kinds of words prompt me to ask questions. Here's the second question. What makes these things insincere or hypocritical? Simply this. I can't say Jesus has purified my vile, wretched heart and treat you as if I'm superior to you. Christians are people who believe they were so bad my sins crucified the Lord of glory. That's how bad I was. You can't say the Lord has opened a fountain of goodness for you and treat others with malice. You can't drink the sweet wine of Christ's mercy with one hand and with the other offer the bitter cup of slander to another person. This is hypocrisy, this is insincerity, because you can't possess a new heart by grace that loves truth and deceive other people. This is insincere hypocrisy because I can't enjoy the lavish riches of the love of God who promises to meet all my needs and in the same breath envy other people. This is hypocrisy, preaching I believe one thing and practicing the opposite. So the, the extreme hypocrisy would be, I believe in safe driving, but I routinely go 20 miles over the speed limit, I text while I speed, I don't wear my seatbelt, and I haven't fixed my brakes for 30,000 miles. Hypocrisy. Third question I ask when I see a list like this. Where is all this stuff coming from? When you see things like malice, envy, slander, you need to get down to the motivational level of the heart of why you're interacting with people with these vices. Where's all this coming from? You can be sure of this. If you were focused on God's glory, you were smitten with the beauty of Christ, you kept gazing upon the loveliness, the holiness, the perfections of God. 
Would you ever see malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, or slander? Not for a second, not a hint. Therefore, these things betray a heart that is self-absorbed. There's a vacuum of self-concern, not God-concern. These things are fruits. These are outward manifestations of a heart that is not at peace with God, but instead seems to be self-promoting, self-defensive, a heart that's filled with anger, with something to prove. This is not a heart that is resting for security in the love of God. God is your defender. Rather, it must be a heart resting in its own performance and finding these to compensate for poor performance in the sight of God. So ask yourself, do my relationships invariably become demanding, selfish, self-protective, self-promoting, serving my ends and needs? Think about your relationships. Dissect them. Are people fundamentally objects to serve your purposes? Or is the impulse of your heart towards other people fundamentally, how can I serve you? What can I do for you? You look at people as recipients of your resources, words, knowledge, money, time, affection. You fundamentally see people as objects of your resources. You've got your focus on them to give to them, to serve them. What are you demanding in relationships? People respect you honor you as knowledgeable, people like you, cooperate with you? If so, then you've made the relationship about you. So you have to wonder, are my poorly placed words, actions, and attitudes reflecting a heart that is fundamentally dissatisfied with the love of Jesus? I think yes. Fourth question to ask a list of five words like this. Is there a specific power, power available to you to overcome these? Hopefully you're looking at these and going, oh, this is painful. This is convicting. I see myself in some of this. Is there a power to overcome these? Yes. What was the thing powerful initially to overcome the impurity of your heart? Well, the pure and spiritual word of God, the imperishable seed. That's why Peter says, Chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. It is only the truth of God's word and the Holy Spirit attending to the power of God's word to displace these things from your heart, to disavow your motives of needing these things, to convince you of a better way to live and to develop an appetite for truth rather than these impure things. That's why it's significant that Peter quotes from Isaiah 40, verses 6 and 8. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty, like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It seems like Peter is saying, do you understand Isaiah? Ask the breath of God to blow over your heart. Ask the spirit of God. Jesus makes this connection in John 3 with Nicodemus. 
The wind blows where it will. The same word in Greek for wind is spirit and breath. He's saying, ask the Spirit of God to blow over your heart. Make it pure. Cleanse it. Give it power by God's Word. And what is it that that the Spirit of God using His Word will actually create when it conquers an insincere heart? It will create an awareness of how merciful and graciously God has dealt with you. If indeed, he says in verse 3, You've tasted that the Lord is good. You've known by experience God's goodness, God's kindness. Here's a point. When your relationships are informed and shaped by God's word, they look like the word of God. Pure, sincere, true, full of grace. So that finishes the part of the sermon, the first contrast insincere relating. Now let's look at how Peter talks about sincerely loving each other. Verse 22 of chapter 1. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, you see the outcome of this ongoing work of asking the Spirit of Jesus to deal ruthlessly with sin in us, with impurity in us. There's a goal for that. Brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. In a sense, he is saying, what makes visible the working of the invisible, imperishable seed of the Word of God? What makes it visible? Love. What kind of love springs from a purified heart? Sincere love. The kind of love with which Jesus has loved us. The Jesus of whom Mark wrote in his gospel, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus loved you in truth, in wisdom, in deed, in selfless sacrifice, in patience, in spite of your failures and in spite of your love for him. God makes the point that you can be sure of Jesus' love for you because of the condition in which he started loving you. God demonstrates his own love for you in that while we were sinners, while we were helpless, while we were ungodly, while we were enemies, that's when God loved us. So I want to tease out some tangible features of this kind of earnest love. Here they are. This kind of earnest love is honest Doesn't the word of God force you to reckon with the junk that's in your soul? Be honest with yourself that I'm only pure by grace. I am what I am by the grace of God. If there's any good produced in my life, all the glory goes back to God, not me. And so I'm going to own my sin as greater than yours. I'm going to be ruthless towards me, tender towards you. How many of you need to flip that? What you practice is ruthlessness towards others and tenderness towards yourself. That's not the gospel. That's not a heart that's feasting and tasting the kindness and love of Christ. This kind of love says, no, I'm the greatest threat to the welfare of my relationships. I'm the greatest threat, not the other person. You might have specks in your eyes, but I got tons of logs to deal with, to use Jesus' image from Matthew 7. 
And because Jesus has my back, I've got nothing to prove. I'm free to focus on you. I don't have to fear getting from you what I think I need. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus meets my every need. So this kind of love is, uh, first off, it is honest. Secondly, it's humble. I'm going to look at you the way God looks at me. The gospel teaches us that God looks at us and deals with us through lenses of grace and mercy. The grace lens is, I have received from God's kind hand far more than I could ever deserve. Grace. Mercy, God does not deal with me according to what I deserve. He is not judging me. Instead, lavishing me through having judged his son in my place, grace upon grace. God looks at me, deals with me through the lenses of grace and mercy. I will look at you the same way, grace and mercy. And if you have a handout available, you can see that I've teased out some contrasts between the proud and the humble. They're ironic contrasts, and it's simply this. As a rule... The humble do not want to be proud. The proud don't want to be humble. So as I go through the list, I want you to find yourself in here. See where you're falling down. Scrutinize your heart. Be willing to dispense with, with, with self-approving labels and perhaps see yourself with new eyes. As a rule, the humble see their pride and loathe it. The proud see humbling and loathe it. As a rule, the humble do not recognize the humility. They're usually the last to see it. The proud do not recognize their pride as a rule. The humble boast in their weaknesses. The proud despise their weaknesses. The humble long for what God wants. The proud long for what they want. The humble weigh their impact on others. The proud are concerned with how others impact them. The humble look to God for help. They're weak, destitute. They're constantly praying, Jesus, by your spirit, show up. The proud um, feel no need. I think I skipped the humble sorrow for their lack of gratitude. The proud feel no need for it, and the proud help themselves. The humble can initiate critical self-evaluation. The proud avoid it while they criticize others. They keep skipping the class of ruthless self-identification and go down to the play, playground where everyone is criticizing everyone else. The humble are content to promote others. The, the proud long to be promoted. The humble see all positions as a gift, all possessions as a gift. The proud feel entitled to their possessions, and the humble know they fear much better than they deserve. The proud think they deserve better. Sincere love relates to others through this humble lens of grace and mercy. 
Third, earnest love is kind. Peter says, quoting from Psalm 34, Jamie read it at the beginning of the service, if you've tasted that the Lord is good or the Lord is kind, the idea seems to be this. You go to a restaurant and you're savoring some lovely food or some special drink, and you go, here, honey, try this. Taste this. Try this. That's sincere love. (laughs) I have experienced the love of God. Try this. Taste this love. It will transform you. It will humble you. It will empower you. It will melt your pride. It will do more good for you than you have any, have any idea. Taste this. Try this. And finally, earnest love is other-centered. What are the most other-centered words ever uttered in the history of the world? They're the words of Jesus on the cross taking his dying breath. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus in extreme physical and spiritual and psychological agony. Putting his focus on the welfare of his tormentors. Asking his father to overlook their ignorance. They are obviously unaware of what their sin is doing to God. They're obviously unaware of what their sin has done to them. They deserve to be on that cross. If I were Jesus, I would be saying, Father, make all these people know that they should be in my place. No. In an act of incredible sacrificial love, Jesus says, forgive them. They know not what they do. And on the strength of that death, he cleanses and forgives forever your heart that his Father would accept you and make you eternally secure in that love. Here's my point. When that love gets into you, you are very concerned how you come across to other people. You get something of the Jesus Jesus DNA of other-centeredness and self-awareness. So you stop and ask, in my relationships, how do people experience me? What is my impact on people? Do I pull you towards me or push you away from me? Do my words, my tone, my posture, my demeanor, my eye contact craft a welcoming space for you? My reactions, spontaneous or pondered, do they create a pleasant environment? Some people are just unpleasant to be around. And they're often not aware of it. This is the point. Love takes stock of itself aware. How am I impacting you? It matters. This is what love does. Do you sense, for example, right now there's nothing in the world more important to me than our interaction, than your welfare? Do you have to endure me talking at you constantly? trying to convey information, trying to show you how smart I am? Are you grateful that your interaction with me is, I'm soliciting questions, concern, data, I'm drawing you out. I'm a receptive audience. You need to be aware of how you come across with people. So as a rule, do you tend to be caring, empathetic, concerned, or at the extreme opposite of the continuum, aloof, 
distracted or uninterested? Where do you tend to fall out? I, I know it might depend on the person, might depend on the situation, might depend on how hungry you're, how tired you are, but as a rule, given the way you are, the, the way sin has warped you, where, where, where do you fall out? As a rule, are you open, inviting, warm, or shy, self-protective, standoffish, and cold? As a rule, disarming, vulnerable, or overbearing, dominating, condescending. As a rule, attentive, focused on the other person, or controlling, self-absorbed, demanding. As a rule, do you generally want to affirm this person? Build them up, please them, Romans 15.2, or are you merely selfishly seeking their approval, which made the relationship ultimately about you. As a rule, are you engaging, interested, inquisitive, or unapproachable and self-promoting? Love asks these questions for that person's good. And how do you become a person with this sort of humble other-centeredness? You need to Fall in love with someone so great he will humble you and so humble he will melt away your pride. His name is Jesus. Let's pray to him. Humble, selfless, other-centered Lord Jesus, our Savior, our life, our refuge, our friend, our shepherd, our shield, our hope, our God. Thank you for the way you love us in unfailing, immeasurable grace and mercy. Transform our hearts by the powerful power of your imperishable word. Use that word, Spirit of Jesus, to make us those who putting off every manner of insincere relating are clothed with sincere love for the glory of, the pleasure of, and in the pattern of Jesus, lover of our souls. In his name, amen. Our final hymn.